All right, so good morning. And I would like, to, is it going for you? Yeah, but it didn't. Okay. Yep. It's yep. Recording. It's on. Okay, good. All right. So good morning. Um, we are here for our, our grand finale in part one. This is the last of the hurrahs for us. We are closing out part one, which is the letters to the seven churches. We are doing the, I think probably one of the, my favorite parts of this, which is the, the recognition and the understanding of the, who the overcomers are. And I know that as we've gone along week by week, I've had a lot of people come up to me even after class, well, we didn't talk about the overcomer. What does that mean? So today is our big day to look at that. And hopefully through the week, you actually got a lot of your questions answered because you did some of that research on those things. But, um, I guess the question I would like to pose is what have, what have been the conclusions that you've come to as you have worked through the weeks concerning who an overcomer is? What have been some of your thoughts about who is an overcomer? A faithful servant? One who pursues all the way to the end. There you go. Good one, Kathy. Oh, she had to do that. The one who's made an overcomer by Christ, because that is really ultimately our big question is, who is that overcomer? What makes them an overcomer? Yes, you pursue to the end. Yes, you, um, you're faithful. You're, you're faithful in your service to God. Yes, you, um, you endure under sufferings and persecutions. Speaking of sufferings and persecutions, this is a real minor Yesterday evening, as I was, or yesterday afternoon, about three o'clock, I sat down to work on my homework, prepare for the class. My computer crashed. And inside my computer are all my notes, all the work I'd been working on, everything I had done up to that point. It was a nightmare. So <laughs> I kept sitting there going, God, you, you always come through for me. I have never seen God not come through for me when it pertains to um, ever for anything, obviously, but in specifically in my work, my ministry work, when I'm preparing for lessons, whether it's I'm trying to find a certain book or a certain piece of paper or a certain scripture or a certain, and whatever it is, God always brings it around and I get it, right? Sure enough, it took us about five hours, but my husband got my computer up and running. He had to hook it in through his computer, though. We literally wiped the whole computer clean. We have to buy a whole new thing. Obviously, we have screens and monitors, but we're going to have to buy a whole new computer system. So that will be tomorrow. <laughs> um, but I just thought it was, again, one of those witnesses of how faithful God is to us, you know, whenever we are in dire need. And I just, I was, I was probably calmer this time than I've ever been under pressure because literally as you know hours I did all of this on my chart with all my cross-referencing and all the, everything all my notes accumulative from things that we've done all through this last what 10 weeks right and so I was all the way down to my last one and a half blocks of getting it finished and then the computer's gone and I just oh thank you Jesus, you came through for me. I am so thankful. Anyway, it's, it's just, again, you know, those testimonies that God is so faithful to us. 
And we can always count on the fact that he knows even the silly details of our lives. I mean, I, you know, as I sat at my table waiting for my husband to get the computer up and running, I, I was trying to think through all the possible strategies. What, how, what could I do for our last class if I can't get to my notes, right? So none of them had to be used. <laughs> Aren't we glad? <laughs> so... Um, I want to start this morning with a reading out of 2 Corinthians. And what sparked it was a um, lesson I listened to this morning by John Barnett on overcomers. And I love him. A lot of us listen to John Barnett. He's very good. It's called Discover the Book uh, Ministry is his ministry. You can go online and Google him. He's a teacher's teacher. He's the kind of guy that lays it out, gives you the cross references, gives you all the analogies. Plus, he's super duper smart. He actually studied under John MacArthur. Um, so there's some similarities there, but he's, oh, he's so good. He's, I really rarely ever disagree with him on anything. Kind of like Kay, you know, he, she's my go-to girl. Okay, but here's the verse that came in his teaching this morning. And I went, that's a great question to start out our lesson this morning. Um, as we're looking to see who are the overcomers, one of the things that we have seen consistently are all the things that, that the rebukes, right, that were given to the churches and how they're described to us shows us the character, the issues, the problems, the things that they were going through. And then you get to see the promises to the ones who do overcome. And I thought to myself, you know, th what he brought up, which was the idea of testing ourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith or not. Now, that really hit with strongly with me this morning, especially after doing all the work that we did this week. So the scripture verse that I was thinking of, and then he brought up and I went on, we're on the same wavelength, it says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you failed the test. Now, the context of this is, is this, I think, really important. This is the letter to the Corinthians, and we've talked about this before. Those poor Corinthians, that church was a mess. And Paul had to write back to them and correct him on everything you can imagine. And aren't we thankful? Because in there, we get to see the solutions and the, and the objections to every kind of sin you can possibly imagine would come your way in a church, right? Or in your personal life. So the context on this, if you back up to um, uh, go back to 1220, because that's far enough. I mean, the whole book obviously needs to be the context. But if you go back to chapter 12 of Second uh, Corinthians, verse 20, he says this, he says, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. In other words, when I show up, what's going to be my demeanor? What, what's going to be my emotional state when I show up in your face, when I see you face to face? How am I going to come to you? and What's that encounter going to be like? Will it be one where I'm happy to see you because I'm because of what I see? And will you be happy to see me because of what you see here, <laughs> right, in my face? And he says, um, 
I wish that, uh, see, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you, not what you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. In other words, I'm going to be so ashamed. This is the church that, that, by the way, claims to be the one that Paul started in this, in this area. You are, you in a way bear my name also. You bear the name of Christ first and foremost. But this is the church that Paul began, and he didn't want to be ashamed of what he had begun, right? And he said, I'm afraid that when I come, uh, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. Do you remember some of the things that we've come across already in our letters to these churches, these seven churches? A couple of them have, have had to do with the immoralities that were going on and the idolatry that was going on even within the churches. He says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony or uh, by two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Oh, we have a new face in the room. <laughs> Hi. Uh, since you are seeking for proof of the of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you for indeed he was crucified because of weakness now this is a I think a crucial statement to keep in mind when you're looking at the things that we're looking today at today because are human beings weak are we even in those in faith even those who have come into this salvation place with God are are we going to error along the way have you seen the errors in the the letters to these seven churches that have been addressed and and christ speaks of the of some among them who are being faithful and yet they're in the midst of all these things that are going on all around them christians fall christians fail sometimes christians i think this is probably one of the number one issues um, for an unbeliever often watching the church because they see the, the frailties of humans who are striving to love the Lord and want to honor God, and yet their lives sometimes fall short, right? And as an outsider, as an unbeliever, they don't have that, that spiritual understanding yet that simply because we've come into faith that we are, not, we are not now going to be sinless, right? We don't become God when we come into our faith. We become Christ's followers. And our following is only as strong as our pursuit of it and our disciplines of it, right? And it takes time. It takes time to grow in that. It takes time to, to learn the disciplines. Um, and each of us individually have our own unique weaknesses, whatever they might be, right? And so I don't want to go into that. But that is what Paul is, I think, addressing here. He's saying, when I come to you, am I going to find you to be what I expect and what I hope? And when I come to you also, will you be happy to see me? Because if I have to come to you as an angry father and discipline, you're not going to be happy to see me because you're going to be doing what? What does a little child do when mom or dad comes in the room and catches them in the act? 
Yeah, they hang their head and they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they run and hide. Sometimes they burst out in anger, right? I mean, there's a variety of ways to respond to that. And Paul is speaking to them on this matter. And he's saying, um, since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize that this is about this about you, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. So that's where we start today, is just considering the idea that we have to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith or not. And this, these letters to these churches give us a great, I think, a great insight on this. Um, we're going to be looking back one by one. I hope we can get through all of these as quickly as we can, but I hope we can. I may not write every detail up on the board. You'll have them all, of course, when you get my chart through the email. But we are going to start with just going through systematically what, what we have done so far. So this is our grand finale. Um, before we, we keep going, I'd kind of like to find out who our guest is. We have a guest back there. Who are you? Hi, Chris. Made all the tacos for today. Oh my gosh, you are like the saint of all saints. Okay, big applaud. Thank you so much. Oh, that's awesome. Actually, I think you and I have talked then because I remember. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I can't see. No, you're not interrupting at all. We're very happy to have you here. Okay. Uh, absolutely. You are so. We are so happy to have you come join us. All right, so you're going to get it. This is going to be crazy for you because we are covering, we are covering like a gazillion scriptures and everything is like review. Okay. All right. Well, so we're going to start with, with uh, Ephesus, letter to Ephesus. Now, who is, how is Jesus described to this particular church? How is he described? Okay. Who holds the seven stars? and who walks among the seven lampstands. Now tell me what you remember about the lampstand. What is the lampstands? What are they? Those are the churches, okay? So the interpretation for us was actually given directly in the, in the text itself. Um, when you look at this definition, having done all that we've done on this, the work, just by remembrance, what do you see are the qualities of who Jesus is in this definition? How is he, what do, what do you see there? Yeah, he's in the midst. So what does that tell you about Jesus? Omnipresent, very good. Omnipresent. Okay. And what else do you see in there? Talks about him holding the seven stars. Now, who are the stars? Okay. It, the, technically, the word said angels of the churches. Now, what do we know that to be? 
it's going to be some form of a leader because these are letters written to them. And these angels, ang anglos, which means what? Translate that from the original language to English. Messenger. Messengers. So they're anglos, translated stars. But in, in our reality, it really should have been messengers to the messengers of the churches, meaning those who are this, the spiritual leaders, the overseers of, in some capacity, the bishops or or the pastors, right? Because the pastor, whoever it is, they're going to receive this written word by through through God from God through John. John's writing it. And John is going to send it to them, and they're going to read it to the church. And then there's a key repeated phrase for us in the text. What is that uh, concerning who hears these things? Very good. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if that Anglos, angel, star, if, these are, if this is not a human being, how would they hear, right? So we know this is a person, a human being. So, and it says on here, he holds the seven stars. So what does that tell you? What, what quality about Jesus are you seeing in that, that he holds them? Okay, we see him as an intimate God. I don't know how to spell intimate. Intimate God, okay. Because <laughs> that one wasn't on my list. <laughs> okay, I put relational, same thing, right? And you said, somebody said in control, what's, what is that word? What is sovereign that he's sovereign. So he's omnipresent and he's sovereign. All right. So that is in kind of in the, in a nutshell, basically what he has said to the church. Now, what have we come to realize is the pattern in this, in the letters to the churches concerning how Jesus introduces himself to each uh, church something to do with what they're struggling with or yes so every time jesus is given to us by definition that definition in this case that he's omnipresent that he's sovereign and that he's relational this has something to do with what's going on in that church and it relates directly to the solution of their of their need right okay what did you learn about who the overcomers are in that church. Tell me just by remembrance, what was their problem? What was Ephesus told they had done? Okay. You have left your first love. Um, and that's in 2.4. And then they were directed to do something concerning that. Do what? Okay, remember from where you had fallen and do the deeds you did at first. Uh, that's in 2.5. And where is that word repent? Is that verse 4? Okay, got it. All right. Okay, 5. I'm counting on you guys to direct me. You're right. Because I didn't... Okay. Okay. So when we discussed that as a group through uh, that lesson, 
What did you find was the, the concept? What was being said there about your first love? What, is, what does it mean? You've left your first love. Yeah. There you go. The most important part about your relationship with God is that first love who is to be Christ himself. Because when you go back to things like Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you see the Ten Commandments, what did you see said there? The first, the first commandment in Leviticus 20 is to do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? Also, and in Matthew, uh, Jesus repeated this again. We call it, I think we call it the golden rule, right? What was said there? There are two things that fulfill the law. Love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, might, and love your neighbor as yourself. So in both of those cases, you get the definition of what it means that they have left their first love. They have forgotten that God is to be their very first love. So this was a church that was doing what kinds of things? What were they, what was this church involved in? Go back and look at it. We're pretty much, you know, testing the, the truth of like, Putting people to the test and to be apostles. Yes. Okay. So they were te they were doing testing things, right? And they were persevering. They were enduring for Christ's namesake. They had not grown weary, but yet God said of them, yes, okay, those are all good things. I'm not condemning you for any of those things. Those are things that are marvelous. Can anybody in here relate to the idea that there can be people within the church who they've gotten so busy working for God and yet they've stopped love? Now, tell me, how do you go about that? What is it that you need to do to, to really love the Lord your God first and foremost in your life? What is, what is the requirement in that? To know him. How do you get to know him, Kathleen? Okay, spending some time in this way. Yeah, the only way you can really come to love God is to know God. The only way you can really come to know God is to spend time in his word. I mean, it really is kind of an easy, understandable uh, cause and effect, right? Okay, so then he says to us concerning that um, in John 15, 4 to 11, he speaks about abiding in the Lord. I want us to read that one. Someone open to John 15 and read verses 4 to 11. Um, <laughs> okay. Isn't that amazing? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you come to understand that what God is saying to this particular church is not that the things that they have been doing were wrong, that those they were all good. But what they God was saying is what's more important to me 
is that you abide in me, that you come to me, that you find me to be the joy and the delight of your life, that I am, I am the treasure above all treasures, that I am the one you long to spend time with, that I am the one that you, see, that you seek, that you want to seek. Um, it is too easy for you and I to get really busy serving God. And serving God is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's actually something that every believer, true believer should be involved with. But if it's at the, at the expense of spending time with God and you have said, well, I don't have time to do Bible study. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to be in church or fellowship. If you have given those things up in order to, uh, it, like in my case, teach or in the case of others to build houses or, or you know, serve people in various capacities. If you are doing those things and you're missing uh, your time with the Lord, then this is what Jesus is, is uh, addressing. Why? Why do you think this matters most to God? Exactly. Yes. In a way, you can almost relate it to a marriage, can't you? If you have a marriage and you don't nurture it and spend time with one another, what happens? It does grow cold. And you can still, as a wife or as a husband, do your duties, clean house, go to work, mow the yard, run the errands, cook the meals, whatever it is that you're doing as a couple. You can live, co you can coexist together in the same house. But have you a real marriage? Do you have a real love bond? I mean, you guys are real quiet on this. Have you? Yeah. You know, and I, I, I know, you know, it's really sad because um, it can happen so easily, even in marriages. And if it can happen in a physical marriage, in reality, how quickly can it happen when you're speaking of a, of a marriage with with Christ, whom you don't physically see, how do you grow in that intimacy? How do you strengthen that marriage? How do you grow in your love for him without spending time, right? So you have, have got to spend time. And that's what that first message was. You've left your first love. That's the letter to Ephesus. You've left your first love and he's calling him back to that. So that was... Um, Yeah. 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 And when when he speaks to us in the um, well, really, when we see God introduced to the Israelites, for instance, when he first came into their world as a people group, the first, one of the first things he did was he gave him the law and in, within the very law itself, he's number one on the list of those 10 commandments was what? Love God, have no other gods before me. Now we didn't get into it, but what are, what are other gods that might push him out of our lives? We don't have God worship per se in our nation, but, but do we? Oh yeah. So when all those other things in your world start pushing God out and you've made him second place because you're too busy making a living or you're too busy pursuing after fun things or after uh, position or popularity or whatever it is that is 
becomes your God, then God says, you can't do that either. You have to love God above all. So love me above all others. I mean, he even speaks about loving him above all others, meaning uh, even, even uh, other um, people. Like you can't put above me mother and father and wives and children and any other relationship that you put above me has now become your God, right? We didn't look at that one either, but that was another one that we should have considered. So that, that takes care of who the overcomers are. He's saying to them, to this particular church, this is what you've done. You've left me. So who's now become second in their life? God. And God says, you can't do that. If you're going to be an overcomer, you must put me first. So what is the promise then to the overcomer in that particular church? Yeah, I will grant. Okay, I had to get the whole thing out. It was a little bit lengthy. Two, chapter 2, verse 7 of Revelation. And it says, to, the, to these who will put me first, those who will, who will abide in me, those who will, who will have relationship with me. I'm going to put on here relationship. Right? It, uh, skip it. I can't spell. And so I don't know what it is relational was my word someone else said intimate how do you spell intimate t-i-m see i still can't do it i-n-t intimate oh has mate at the end that should be a clue. <laughs> I can't spell. I don't know why my brain wasn't into that word this morning. And I have spelt it many times in my life. However, this morning I can't. That's the way that goes, right? So, oh, that's Leviticus. Leviticus 20, verse 3. Yes. Okay, so now let's talk about the promises. Now, this was a lot of fun this week. What you guys did this week was uh, some work on the subject of the tree of life. She had you do that in your homework time. See if you can find where that is. It was your very first, it was day four homework, it looks like. What did you learn about the tree of life? Isn't that awesome? Those who eat of it will live forever. Now, what was the first mention of the tree of life in scripture? Where did we see that? In the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden concerning the tree of life? What did God tell Adam and Eve? Well, there was the tree of good of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, what about it? Not to eat of that. And they ate of it. And then what did God do concerning then the tree of life as a, as a result? 
he bought, he got her down. He put the cherubim before it. He, and he said to them that they were not to eat of it. Why? Well, because they had sinned at that point and they had had eternal life without God. Okay, there you go. Because the result of eating of it would be that they would live forever. He says that they put, he put a guard there. He says, least they eat of it and live forever. And if they live forever, in what state were they at this point? fallen, separated from God. And so God caused them to not do that. Now, this is just, I thought it was very interesting when you made that comparison. Then when we went into Revelation 20, was it 22? Yes. What did you see uh, concerning the tree of life there? That it's, there's a river that kind of goes through it. Yes. It's on both sides. Isn't that neat? And where is it located? In heaven. Okay. So I know you missed that part. You talked about the, the water and the tree of life, but it's, it's in heaven. So what we now know is there was a tree of life in the garden. And now there is what we see as scriptures tells us there's a tree of life in heaven. Now, I don't know if it's the same tree of life or if he just moved it or if he created another one. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But what he does say is there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of that tree, by the way, in the beginning until they sinned. But once they sinned, he, he stopped them from eating of that tree of life. And he put a guard of cherubs before it. The cherubim protected them from being able to go and eat of it anymore. Now, though, the promise is for those who overcome, you will get to eat of that tree of life in heaven. Who gets to eat of it? Anyone who gets to enter into heaven, right? Uh, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So anyone who entered into heaven then gets to eat of the tree of life. I just think that's exciting. So anyone, the promise is you granted to eat of the tree of life. Yay, tree of life. That one was, was there wasn't a whole lot of information to give us um, concerning that, but I do think it was really interesting just to see that there was one in the garden and now there's also one in heaven. And that the, the point is it's those who are overcomers who will eat of that tree. You know, I, I thought it interesting that, that there was a tree, singular, I know. Wait till you get to draw that out. And you're going to get to draw this out in, in part two of Revelation. One. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Pardon? No. Yes. It's just concerning the tree of life itself. And it is a literal tree and it bears fruits 12 times out of the year fruit for each of the seasons. And it, the, the leaves of it are for the healing of the nations. Now, exactly what all that means, I'm not certain. Does anybody have any insight on that? Did you do any other research? No? Okay. All right. Well, the, I just think that that is an exciting picture, though, that it wasn't it was in the garden and now it's there. Um, 
All right, so now we're ready to move to the next one. Do you have any other questions concerning that first one? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, making him first in your life. It's the one who makes Jesus or makes God first in his life, who is an overcomer. There you go. If you want to give it a, a one word bullet, it's a believer. Anyone who does that is the one who will eat of the tree of life in heaven. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Exactly. So in a way, we've almost united two different qualities, the, the white robes, right? The robe being washed in the blood and the, the tree of life are united in that one verse. That was, uh, give me that reference again. Okay. All right. Yeah. We come up with that when we get to the robes, I think. Okay. Okay. Let's look at Smyrna. How is Jesus described to the church at Smyrna? He is what? The first and the last. He was dead and has come to life. Those were great lessons. When I thought, when I was thinking back on these, I was just really enjoying the review of it all. Now tell me, what does it mean he's the first and the last? By definition, who is this? Again, just like up here, we said, he who holds the seven stars, he who walks among them, he's the omnipresent God, he's the sovereign God, and he's the intimate or relational God, right? Okay, so in this case, he's the first, the last, he was dead, and he's come to life. So now what do we, what do we know about him from what we've studied before? The resurrected God. Resurrected Lord. Okay. The first and the last. Remember, this is what we've covered a lot. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is this? Yahweh, the, he's called the what? The I am. Well, that one should be your favorite one, Kristen. <laughs> the I am. Uh, we, what did we learn about the I am? What do we know about him being called the I am? What did you learn? This is all review. The self-existent one, the first, the last. And in being the self-existent one and being the first and the last, first and the last concerning what? What does that mean? Eternal. There's a great word. The I am, the eternal God. The eternal God. He was first, he's last, he was dead, he's come to life, he's now resurrected, he's the I am, he is, he was, he has always been, right? The same yesterday, today, and forever, the eternal God. Okay, now, with that as our title for who he is to this church, what was it that they were told? Now, they, there was no condemnation to this church, correct? Why was that? Why no condemnation to Smyrna? They were suffering. 
why would you not give a condemnation to a church who was undergoing the pressures of that kind of suffering that we know was going on in those days? Why would there not be condemnation? Because, I'll say it again. Because they were suffering for the Lord. And what does that show? What is their evidence of then? Yeah. That there was absolutely nothing that they would not do for this uh, understanding of, of their relationship with God. They were not going to give up God for anything, not even if it cost them what? Their life. Did it cost some people their lives what did we learn in the study of smyrna about people who lost their lives what are some of the examples right okay uh, yeah well later and and antipas is spoken of at one of the other churches who was it that died in smyrna polycarp there you go Polycarp, right? And then I had brought in for you all just a book that um, from 1922, there's a record of the uh, genocide that occurred in, the, in Smyrna. And previous to that, there were many others as well, by the way. Antipas is one that's, that's mentioned later in uh, one of our other letters. But these are people who were, some of them dipped in, in oil and burned at the stake. Some of them were hung upside down and crucified. Uh, the genocide in uh, 1922 against the Christians there, that was, those were people who um, were blockaded into a certain area of the city, and then the whole city was set on fire. And the, the, the record of the letters and the, and the uh, journals that were gathered by this reporter, they, they talked about how many layers of dead bodies were out in the water in the bay from people trying to get away from the flames and they went out into the water and they had died. Many of them were already severely burned when they got there to begin with. But I mean, the, the idea that these were people that for their Christian name alone, because they bore the name Christian, these were people who were put to death, right? Pardon? This was in Smyrna, ancient Smyrna, which is pre 1922. This is present day uh, Izmir, Turkey, which is where I lived for several years. No, they knew it when the persecution happened in 1922. But uh, maybe you missed it, but I have a book on it. It's very good. It's called Smyrna 1922. And um, it's, it is present day Izmir, but the the book was written and it was written as a record because what's been going on since then is the Turkish government has been trying to deny that this ever happened. That they were the Armenian Christians and many others. There was also Anglican and there was a variety of them. No, no, exactly. Okay, so uh, Smyrna, uh, the first and the last. So these, these are those who he gives himself a presentation as the resurrected Lord, the I am and the eternal God. And he says to them, do, do not what? Do not fear suffering. Now, this part is very interesting. We didn't do as much on this one either as I would really love to have done. He tells them to don't fear, but go ahead and be faithful 
don't worry about it. I'm going to take you out of that suffering and nothing's going to happen. You're going to live and you're going to be just fine. Is that what he said? No. What did he tell them? Be faithful unto death. Now, does that mean everyone will die for their faith? No, it just means if in fact you're called to that, then be faithful unto death. And what do we know about how God makes provision for people when they're in those kinds of situations? If you are put into a, how many of you have ever said to yourself, well, I just don't think I could have done that. You know, somebody like even the apostles, as we know how they were all crucified and executed in a variety of ways, or Polycarp dipped in oil and, and then burned at the stake, right? Uh, or John, who was actually dipped in, in uh, hot oil and he lived through it and then they put him out on the island of Patmos. Can you imagine those? Okay, he does. He can give you that peace you need. Does it give it to you before it happens? So what is it that you can count on then? If God says to you and I, don't fear suffering. And if it should come, be faithful unto death. If I take you unto death, if I actually have you be my martyr, if you are, if you are called to be a martyr, what will God do? Yeah, he will give you what you need in the moment. He, uh, he says, I don't give you today what you need for tomorrow. I give you at the moment what you need, right? There always is a limitation. I love that. As a matter of fact, even in this one, he says you will be um, tested for how long? Ten days. Now, do we think it was a literal 10 days? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But in this book, what do we know? What kind of book are we in? What is our literary style? It's symbolisms. It's all, it's all symbolic. So there's a lot of symbolism that's going to be uh, within the writing of this text. And here's another one of those examples. Uh, I, some of you will be put into prison for 10 days. It's just, again, as Kathleen pointed out, it's just symbolic that there's going to be a definite or a defined time period that God has predetermined. Now, we don't know what that is. God knows what that is. But you can understand that there is always an end to it. There's always a, a, a beginning and an end to suffering. Your suffering may be ended by your death or your suffering may just end and you live on, but you don't know which it is. And the point to this message is you are to not fear suffering but rather you're to trust god in the time of your of your trials what do we know is an absolute calling for christians if you come into faith if you become a christian what can you count on suffering, suffering. Uh, luke 21 says you're going to be ha hated they hated me they're going to hate you and on account of my name you will suffer um what does jesus tell us about picking up our cross. Yeah, pick up your cross daily and follow me. So whose example are we following? Jesus. What did Jesus do concerning his suffering? Did he, he, he endured it all the way unto death. So you, you don't fear it and you be faithful unto death. And whichever is your calling, 
into, God will give you what you need to get through that. However, you, we know that no matter what, we do suffer in this life. Absolutely. So is that part of the... Um, there are different kinds of suffering. In this, in this context, we're speaking about suffering for the sake of your faith. In other words, for the name of Jesus, you would suffer. Oh, it's, identified. it's identified in that way. Yeah. It's not just speaking about bad health or yeah. being hungry or, you know, those things, unless it's for the sake of Christ, then it's what it's speaking of. First um, Peter 4, 12 to 14. Let's read that one because that's a really good one. I guess I'll just leave it there. I've got it on here. Somebody read that. Who's got that first Peter four? Okay, Kathy. Uh, first Peter four, and it's verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that awesome? That's such a great verse. Don't be surprised when fiery ordeals come upon you or come in your midst, which comes upon you for your testing. Now, in this context, First Peter, God is actually saying concerning these fiery ordeals they're the ones he's sending so sometimes the world comes against you as an enemy because you love jesus they hate you sometimes god actually allows fiery ordeals and trials and tests think of the story of job right it, again it was the enemy of our souls who came against him it was satan who was attacking job but who allowed it god so what does that remind us then concerning suffering all suffering It's to refine us. And it's, and I'm sorry, go ahead, Amanda. Excellent. That's another really good one. That one, that, that is a really perfect complement to this other verse here. In both cases, what you can know is this. If you are endure, if you are in the midst of suffering, whatever it is, God has allowed it. And in this case, um, it it covers both uh, suffering for the sake of Jesus' name and just general suffering. Either side of it, God is allowing it. If you if you're in suffering, God knows it. God's aware of it, and God. God is permitting it to happen in your life for a purpose. Don't be surprised by fiery ordeals when they come upon you. They come upon you for your testing, as she said in James, uh, but rejoice. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, however, in that quality, then you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Sure. Yeah. 14. 
because the spirit's glory and God rests upon you. But then it goes on and tells them, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer. Right. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in the same. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the saint? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls. To That's the verse I was thinking of. Are to trust their souls to creator in doing what is right. In doing what is right. Yes, in, in uh, a little bit. Well, in, in the case of Smyrna, Smyrna was in, for sure, they were enduring the kind of suffering that an evil, an, uh, an evil outside force was bringing in amongst them. But there's, but really the subject matter of suffering, it really, it, it's, it trans, it's, what is the right word? It, it goes beyond just the limitation of suffering for the name of Christ, but it means any kind of suffering, whatever it is. How many of you in here are suffering at any given point throughout the, especially as we get older? We all are, right? If nothing else, we're suffering in our physical bodies, right? So what God is teaching us, I think, through this letter to Smyrna is not just those who are suffering for the sake of their Christian faith, but suffering on the whole. But but if you suffer and you acknowledge God in it and you bow your knee to him and you submit to him and you say, uh, as Paul did when he prayed, remember the thorn in his side and he prayed that the Lord would remove it. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. This still applies to him too. Don't fear suffering, be faithful unto death. Even if that suffering takes you into death, what you have to, you have to do is put God first, trust him, right? And pray for, pray for those things pertaining to it, obviously, right? But he says, because why? I am the first and the last. I was dead and I've come to life. So what happens if in fact you die? Do you need to fear that death? No. Yeah. I like the way Kathleen put it. You get to go to heaven. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation on the phone just this last week with, with one of my friends. And I'm, I'm like, you know what? I am so ready <laughs> to go and be with Jesus because, you know, sometimes the suffering in this body and the enduring in it, it really is a trial. But that's where daily we put our faith and our trust in God. And we understand that suffering has its purpose. But we also understand that when suffering comes against us for the name of Jesus, that we suffer a, for a righteous cause for what is right, as you went on to read in 1 Peter 4, right? Yes, okay, we have one hour. We're moving on. <laughs> Promises. He who overcomes does what? Will not be hurt by the second death. Now tell me what you learned about that second death. What is it speaking of? the lake of fire. So we learned that the second death is speaking specifically of, of uh, the lake of fire. And are there any other synonyms for the lake of fire? Hades, Sheol, hell. <laughs> Very good. We're getting them all. We're doing good. So the lake of fire, hell, Sheol. Yes. 
they are. Let, but but in all, in general, what we're saying is whether you are splitting the hairs on Hell versus Sheol and and Hades, and there is a splitting. Good catch, Carol. Woohoo! We studied it. You are right. Good girl. And yes, there's a distinction, but in the end, it's still the place of fire. It's still the place that's uh, in condemnation and judgment. It's the place where you're separated from the presence of God. So it all still pans out to be the same place in the context of our conversation for the moment. Okay. No, she's saying, no, you taught me the other way and I'm not going any good girl, good girl. But remember, hell is not opened up until the end times right now. It's still empty. Yes. Yes. Temporarily waiting for the day when hell opens, when they will go before God's white throne and then go into hell. So they still end up in the same place. Sheol, Hades, which is bad fire, place of fire. Yes. Remember it. Yes. Okay. Now. Okay. She brought it up. I have to go there. <laughs> the, in the old Testament before the cross, we had all people going into Sheol. Sheol is the big name, the, the totality of this place. But that place remember was divided into two segments, the bosom of Abraham and the place of fire. And the place of fire is what we're talking about. The other side, the bosom of Abraham, where are those people now that the cross is accomplished? They're up in heaven with the Lord. Be, uh, so when, when Jesus ascended on high, he took with him a host of captives and set them free, right? That's, um, yeah, Ephesians 2.8. I think that's right. Anyway, yes. So that part is empty now. And it's just the place of fire. So the place of fire is still the place of fire. Those same people in that area of Sheol, that, that other half, they are going to go into hell at, after the great white throne judgment, which we're not there yet, which means it's hell is not opened up yet. Hell is still empty. Okay. One day it'll, it'll be filled with all the people who prior uh, in all history, including right now, Anyone who dies out of faith, they go right now into this place of fire in Sheol. It's called the first. There you go. That's the first death. They call that the first death. What happens after that? The judgment seat of, of God at the great white throne judgment. We're not there yet, but we're going to get there in our revelation study. And when that occurs, then they go into the second death, which is hell. Right. Okay. Well, we kind of cleared that one up pretty good <laughs> without any scriptures, but we did it. I hate doing it that way. Okay. We'll not be hurt by the second death. So the second death is. Yeah. Eternal lake of fire. Very good. That was a good way to put it. The lake of fire. Um, we saw in revelation 20, 13 to 15, the dead are judged according to their deeds. And those what? Not found written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. So those, it's eternal lake of fire. It is where those not found 
in the in the in this case it's the book of life they are thrown into that place but they we this is this is where the unsaved go right the lake of fire there but we will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? It's this. It's the lake of fire. Okay, that's a good one. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but yeah, we can do that. What did you guys see when you looked at these books? What did you come to a conclusion about all these different books? Some of them are called what? The book of life. What else? The Lamb's Book of Life. Now, hold on a second. The Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if you're written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what is, who's the Lamb? Who's the Lamb? Jesus is. So if you're written in his book, what do you think that means? You're in like Flynn, right? That means you're saved. So the Lamb's Book of Life is a good thing, okay? But there's also the Book of Life. And that Book of Life, what have we learned so far about that Book of Life? Some people are written in it and others are what? blotted out if you're blotted out of the book of life what does that mean mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah no bueno <laughs> very good do you I find any place in the scriptures where you can deal with that all you can do is do a topical study and go to every reference concerning these different books and there's a variety of them there's also books of deeds Yes. which you're judged by if you don't if you're not uh in faith for those that are not saved um and it says in uh, daniel chapter 7 it speaks about um god setting up court god he sets up a court like he's in a courtroom and it says and the books are opened and that's plural books and so that tells you there's a lot and then people are judged by these books uh, so again, it's just what it is, is it's just a reference to the fact that there's a record that God keeps a record. And for those who are not in the Lamb's book of life, what, what happens to them? Then they have the second death. But for those of us who are faithful, the overcomers who don't fear suffering and are faithful unto death and still hold our testimony, what does it say? We won't be hurt by that second death. So that second death will have no effect on us. That's what the promise is. Yay, right? That's a good but, thing. That means you won't go, go to hell. It means you will go to heaven. But my question is, can anything be done by those that are approaching heaven? Is there if you are in the Lamb's Book of Life. I mean, when you're not. Oh, if you're not in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will be hurt by the second death. You will go to hell. You cannot get into heaven if your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life. But if you're approaching it, that means you're still alive. Yeah, that's true. So there's, a, there's, there's a chance. Yeah. Christ is the answer for those that are approaching it. Well, I'm thinking of one of my family. Yeah. Dead. Oh, well, if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior and their names are not written, in the Lamb's Book of Life, in other words, they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, then their names were never written in his book. I know, it's really, it's a very sad thing. And you know what, how many in here 
know someone that they've dearly loved that they know died out of faith? Only three of us? Are you kidding me? The rest of you, all your friends, everybody knows the Lord? But we're looking at... I mean, you literally wanted us to raise our hands. Well, I'm not saying you know it about everyone, but do you have certain people in your life that you know for sure have died that, that did not know the Lord? I do. I know a lot of people who've died that did not know the Lord. They, they refused it. They didn't want to hear of it. They didn't want to talk about it. They, they you know, therefore, I know. Yeah. Okay, right before, this is a lovely question. You know, there's scripture that talks about Jesus hiring different laborers for the field. Does somebody want to talk about that? Do you know a little bit more? You're nodding your head like you know all of, okay, you, you know it, but you want me to tell it, right? Okay. <laughs> okay, so what Jesus basically says is there are people who, I, I, how about even on the cross? This is a great one. The cross is the best one. Jesus is on the cross. They're about to die. There's the two th thieves on each side of him. And the one on one side continues to curse God. And he goes to where? Hell. Where The other one, however, says, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And, and what did Jesus reply to him? Today, you should be with me in paradise. So you can have a deathbed experience and come into salvation. So maybe that addresses what you're kind of making reference. So we don't know all the way up to the very last second what a person is thinking in their mind and where they're cognitively able to go. But what we do know is in general practice, we know people who knew the Lord and didn't know the Lord. It's not our job anyway to judge souls. So we're not about the business of indicating who is and who isn't. But the point to this message is that you evaluate yourself. Remember what I started this, this lesson with reading in, uh, was it 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, right? In 2 Corinthians, he says to you that you are to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless you fail the test. We are, it is our, our job as Christians, as believers. This is why we do Bible study. This is why we're in here. We are to be about the, the job of pursuing God, pursuing to know him. How can you even put Christ first in relationship if you don't know him, right? That's why the very first one to the letter to the Ephesians was, you've left left your first love. You need to get back on board with making me as your highest priority. I am to be your passion. I am to be the one that you can't wait to get up for in the morning and the one, the last one that you think of before you go to sleep at night. I'm the one you're to be in prayer with. I'm the one you're to be in fellowship with. I'm supposed to be your best friend, your abiding God, right? And if you do that first, then you know you're in right relationship. And guess what? You will eat of that tree of life in heaven. You will. That's our job. Here, he's talking about those who are suffering. And he's saying about them, they got no condemnation. Why? Because they were already proving through their life that God was first in their, in their, in their relationship. God was first because they were willing to die for him. And they did right? And so God says, do not fear that suffering, because guess what? You're not going to be hurt by the second death. Remember what Polycarp said to them? Uh, 
when they said curse God and die. And he said, how can I, how can it be the God who has done me no harm these 82 years or whatever it was, he said, 86 years, how can I curse him now? He said, he said, I won't. And he went to his death knowing that he would not be hurt by the second death. You may take, there's a scripture on this. You can take the body, but you cannot touch the soul, right? That's what we learned in that particular letter. Okay, Smyrna's done. Pergamum. Pardon? Smyrna received the crown of life. Oh, yeah, I talked about the crown of life. We didn't cover that one, and we didn't even do it in our homework. The crowns are very interesting. It's a whole nother Bible study, but there are crowns, and there's debate as to whether the crowns that are mentioned throughout Scripture, do they go to all believers, or do they only go to some believers? Um, Personally, I think if you're engaged in doing anything that those crowns are related to, that we all get them. Anybody, I don't think there's special classification. Do you think God has special classifications of people that he gives re rewards to? I, I, don't, I don't know. Pertaining to the overcomers, though, who gets it and who doesn't? Believers get it and unbelievers don't. That's the bottom line. All believers are considered overcomers. That's what we're beginning to already see just by going through these first two. So are rewards and crowns We don't know. We don't know. The scripture is not real clear on it. And there's a lot of debate on it. You, but I do know, I, have a, I had a list when we were doing them and nobody asked me, so I never did go into it. I have a whole list of all the different crowns that there are. There's crowns of righteousness, there's uh, crowns of faithfulness, there's crowns of, I mean, there's all these different crowns. And they're all going to be laid at his feet. And they're all going to be laid at his feet anyway. That's true. What does it matter? We give them back to him, right? Yeah. I think I do think that this is something that I talked to people, especially parenting. Um, you know, we talk about, well, everybody should get a reward right now. Everybody goes to competition in schools anymore. They all get a reward. And there's no first place and second place. They're all equal. And I'm like, but God doesn't operate that way, does he? When you look at the, the parables where he talks about um, handing out the minas to people and then giving rewards based on what they did with them, right? Um, I do believe that there is, that's a, that's a principle that's godly and that should be taught to our kids. You, you don't all get a, a, a trophy just for showing up. I do think that there are rewards based on merit, not on the measure of how much commitment you have. I just think our common sense tells us that. But what those crowns mean exactly, we don't know. And we didn't study it. So I'm going to withhold my ignorance and not talk on it. No problem. I can do it. You watch me. Okay. Okay. Pergamum. We're moving on. <laughs> Pergamum. Pergamum. He's, Jesus is, how is he presented to us in that church? I liked this one. He has, sword. he has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay. Tell me what we learned about Pergamum concerning a sword. Do you remember the sword that was given to the governor of that city in Pergamum? And what he had the right to do by the, yeah. 
Yes. He could literally walk about the city that governor or that the uh, mayor basically of Pergamum and by order of Caesar out of Rome, he had the right to be able to basically lop off the head of anybody that he chose to. That was his, his God-given right, supposedly, by Caesar, which is interesting. So that's the background. That was the historical backdrop to this concept of understanding that in Pergamum, he has a, that Jesus is the one who has the two-edged sword. Now, what does that mean for us? What do we know about about what is the idea then of having a sword? If he has a, a sword, what does he do with a sword? It can be a protector or a defender, or it can be a judge, right? And Jesus tells, tells us, he says, I am coming soon in Revelation 22, 12. What does he tell us there? Revelation 22, 12, which is the context for the writing of everything that's said here for us. What do we sing in Revelation 22, 12? I'm coming soon, and what am I do? What am I doing? There you go. I am bringing, basically, I have a two-edged sword. I am the one, and I am going to recompense. What does it mean to recompense? To repay. That's good, Sarah. Exactly. I'm going to repay everyone. Now, if you want a, a good New Testament reference for that, there's another one in Romans 2, uh, where he, he speaks about um, God judging the secret thoughts of men. And he talks about, I'm going to judge them based on their deeds, and I'm going to judge them. There are some who are doing works that are going to lead to eternal life, and those that are doing works that are going to lead them into hell. And he says, I, um, I'm going to judge the secrets of men through Christ, uh, but the riches of his kindness and his tolerance is meant to lead you to repentance. So the other side of that sword is my desire is that that sword is used to guide you into repentance. But if it won't, then I will recompense. So it's the idea of the sharp sword is about judgment. So he's our judge, right? Um, okay, so who he who overcomes then what? He tells him to do, well, really the only direct command is in 2.16, correct? Do you see it there? He tells him repent, right? What were the two problems that were going on there? There were two issues. They were holding to two things. They had the false teaching. Yes, that was it. Exactly. So basically, there were two teachings that were in that church, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching, teaching of the Nicolaitans, right? And in, in the case of both of them, apparently, they led the people into immorality and idolatry. Okay, so that was what they were, they were up against, immorality and idolatry sacrificing things to idols, right? That was the issue. And he says concerning that, repent. That was the commandment to them. They were to repent. Um, why? Yeah, well, because he's coming quick. Yes, and he is coming quickly. Um, very interesting to me, though. If you think back about 
God, when it would, remember, we, we looked at Balaam. We went back to the Old Testament, looked at Balaam. And what Balaam was doing was trying to curse Israel when God was really only allowing him to bless them, right? The premise to that whole story, though, had to do with, with what? Balaam not being faithful to who? Not being faithful. He was supposed to be God's prophet. And he was known as God's prophet. He was called on to be God's prophet. That's what this man did. He called him there because he was a prophet of God. Now, when he got there, he was willing to be bought off, right? And God was saying, you can't do that. So basically, the, the, the part of the heart of the story there is about being faithful to God. Why? Because God is a jealous God. And God is saying, I'm not going to share my glory with any other. And this... And this uh, Go and look at um, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 11. This is a really good one. And we didn't cover it, but in Deuteronomy 7, it kind of lays it out. This is Israel about to go into uh, the promised land, okay? Somebody read 7, 1 to 11. Who's got it? All the ites. Okay, is that all the way through 11? Wow. Okay. I know that was a long one, but what it really set up for you was understanding that when God called Israel out to be his people and was about to put them on the land, he was sternly warning them, do not 
compromise your relationship with me. You are in covenant with me. I am your God and I am to be your only God. And you are to not make covenants with any other people or any other gods, right? I am to be the one that you rely on. And he also says, I'm a jealous God and I am a faithful God. I will be faithful to you, but I'm a jealous God. I will not share you with any other worship system, right? And I won't share you in your disobedience either. If you disobey me, I am going to, he literally says, I will cast you off the land if I have to. So this is basically what was going on in this one. They, they were in immorality and idolatry, which is exactly what you see in that text in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 11, where he was warning them, don't do that. This is what had happened then by the time we get to the Balaam story, the nations had already subdivided into north and south for Israel, the nation, they were worshiping in the north on uh, uh, through a different faith system. It wasn't even the original uh, laws that God had laid down for Israel. So they were already basically violating all of God's laws. Plus, on top of that, the idolatry, the immorality that was coming in, Jezebel comes into the picture, right? But Balaam was uh, symbolic, basically, of one who had a divided heart. On the one hand, he was supposed to be serving God, but on the other hand, he was not. And so this is what God was rebuking them for. So here he says to this, this church, uh, Pergamum, you need your, your immoralities that you have fallen into because of idolatry. He said these two things, you need to repent of them. And he's basically he, what he wants them to do is to hold fast, right? Hold fast to what? Does it say? Oh, okay, well, they, he wants them to hold fast to God's word, and he wants them to hold fast. I know it doesn't say it in this one. Uh, hold fast in fidelity. To God. So this was really at the heart of what was going on. Their immorality and their idolatry, they weren't holding fast to God's word or God himself, and they were not being faithful in fidelity to God alone as their only God. That was what was the problem in Pergamum. And he says to them, if you will do that, if, if you will hold fast, if you will repent of this divided heart, if you will, if you will repent of living immoral lives, sexual impurities that they were engaging in, what does he promise to them? Yeah, I will give uh, some of... I thought that was a trait of hidden manna. Okay. And then the next one was a white stone and a new name written on it. I love that. The stone that no one knows. but you, right? Now, I love these promises, mainly because we've done a real in-depth study numerous times at this church on the subject of covenant making and what all these symbolisms are talking about. Do you know that, that these, all three of these are symbolics of covenant? These are symbolic covenant practices, 
And so if you, if you know this, when you see here that their immorality and idolatry of this divided heart, this comes out of this background of Deuteronomy 7, where they were in covenant as a nation. Israel was in covenant. They were in, in covenant with God. He was to be their only God and they were to obey him, which had to do with immoralities being wrong and that God was to be their only God. So when you see then that the promise to them has to do with covenant practices, I'm going to write this on here. These are covenant practices or traditions. Okay. Now to make it completely understood to you. It's like the tradition that we have when we make a covenant called marriage. And what do we exchange? Wedding rings, right? It's a covenant practice. This is a sign of my covenant with my husband. Every time you see a ring on someone's finger, you know they're in covenant with someone. God is telling us that if we will be faithful in our covenant to him, he's going to give these things to us. So there are some different things that, that pertain to covenant making. The first one has to do with hidden, hidden manna. Now, manna, what is manna about? What did you learn when you did your work on that? Yes, it's literally the food. Okay. And in, if you want to break it down even further than that, besides it being literal food, what was it symbolic of? It's the bread of life. And what is the, what is the bread of life? Jesus is the bread of life. Okay. So Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread. He's the bread of life, which came down out of heaven. The scripture tells us, right? Also, um, what, what else is manna sometimes referred to or symbolic of? Yes. The word of God. This is the bread of life that we eat every day when we get up and we consume it. And as we want to grow closer and to know God better, we do it through the word of God. Okay, so we've got manna, we've got Jesus is the bread. Also the word, the word of God is also bread. By the way, what is Jesus? He's the word of God. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus is the word of God. Bread is symbolic of Jesus. And, and the, um, the manna is, is made, making reference to both of these things, the word of God and to Jesus, who are actually both one and the same anyway. So we have, I'm going to give you hidden manna. Now, what is that speaking of, do you think? And I'm only going to give you some of it, by the way. If... Okay, yes, right. To be a remembrance that man does not what? Live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So if we live by the word of God that comes out of the mouth of God, what do you think the hidden manna is? It's the word of God. And he's going to give you some of it, but why only some of it? And he's, going to get, and he's giving it to who? who those who overcome. And he's going to give you some of it. So each individual gets some. Okay. And why would that be? How do you think, how do we receive the word of God right now? Pardon? 
Okay, by faith we believe it and we, we, we receive it. Does everybody understand it and have knowledge of it to the same degree? No. How about insight? There you go. What about the insights pertaining to the word of God? Does everybody have the same measure of insights and knowledge? No. So it's, it's this idea then that in heaven, what would be this manna? And that it's hidden. Why is it hidden? Yeah, you have a big aha moment when you enter into the presence of God. You get the, can you imagine just this flood of, of insight that's going to come to us? But do you think that we will all have full insight on every subject? No, why not? There you go, Kristen. Good girl. Because we're not God. When we go to heaven, do we attain to Godhead? No. When we go to heaven, do we become the all-knowing like God? No. So we're never going to have full knowledge. We're never going to have all knowledge. The other thing is, is when we get to heaven, do you think there's going to be new manna, new insights, new scriptures? I think it's really exciting to me as a, especially being a teacher, as I'm wondering, you know, we get to heaven and God gives us basically the new written word. We're going to get it during the millennial reign as well. When Jesus comes, he's going to begin to speak about things. How many of us have questions right now about heaven still? Oh, yeah. And when we go through the millennial reign, how long is that? A thousand years. We're still going to be wondering about heaven, aren't we? Do you think Jesus during the millennial reign will begin to give us new manna? I hope so. <laughs> Me too. I think that's got to be what it's talking about. It's got to be talking about the yet unrevealed word of God that's going to be given to us in that day when Jesus comes to live on the earth and rule and reign in our midst. And he begins to explain to us about the things that are yet to come ahead. He's given to us what we need for right now in our present life in this world, but he will give us yet more in, in the future. And he gives to each of us a measure, right? That's my thought. Yes. Is that where the, the throne is set up in that river? Yes. Yes. Trees? Yes. Well, well, no, that in Hannah, maybe the Lord will teach us about that tree. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I, I think that during the thousand year reign, when Jesus is here on the earth, I think he will teach us and we will get new scriptures and we will be given this manna. But it, it talks about hidden manna. Why is it hidden? It's only hidden for the moment. It's hidden for this age. But in the age to come, we're going to get more. And he's going to give us more scripture and more insight. And what's really cool is it's exciting to know that we'll never stop growing and never stop learning and never stop wanting to know more. And I would guarantee you, even in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be more new things to learn. And we're going to even have yet more things there. When we get into the millennial reign, he will probably give us new manna that's going to tell us about the new heaven and the earth, but he won't tell us everything. When we get there, we're going to have more new things to learn. So this is just a promise of this, this continual influx of, of truth and insight and growing and learning. It's never going to stop. Isn't that, that's an awesome thing to me. I love that. Okay, the white stone. What is the white stone? Got so much to cover still. I know. White stone. What did you learn about it? Interesting. 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 
it can be an invitation to a party. And what party might that be for you and I? How about the wedding feast, right? We've actually seen parables about the wedding feast and that those that get invited. Actually, it doesn't talk about a white stone in those cases, though. It does talk about how you're dressed when you show up. If you're not dressed appropriately, you don't get into those parties. So who would have ever guessed that having a, a party, uh, appropriate wear for your party to be actually biblical? <laughs> Black text only. <laughs> okay. Any other, also the verdict stone, right? Sometimes these stones, which were white, were handed a white one for who? Innocent. For the innocent, right? So the innocent, if you were deemed innocent in whatever you had been charged with, you were given a white stone and that stone says you are not guilty. <laughs> That's what we want. Okay. Um, okay, so the manna and the, and the bread. And then the last one is the new name written on the stone, right? Uh, why a new name? Some of you guys did covenant. Why do you get a new name? Yes, she's taking. It's one of the reasons why we are called Christians right now. And Jesus has already told us in your homework this week. What is Jesus going to have? A new name. And so, what happens to us? We get a new name, right? And by the way, I think this part was interesting that no one knows except for you. What is that talking about? Go back to here. Um, wait a second. Yeah, I've, I've lost it. I guess I forgot to put it on here. Um, when you're in relationship with God, what kind of a relationship is it? It's a personal relationship. Um, if you equate it to the idea of marriage, in marriage, are there things that you share with your spouse that you really don't share with anyone else? Yeah. And so in that intimacy relationship, then there are certain things that are kept private, so to speak, right? So what is so what do you think the implication is here that he's trying to impress on us? What, what is he implying? There you go. Amen, girl, you preach it. This, all it's really saying is it's giving it through an imagery uh, statement is that there is going to be this intimacy between each one of us individually with our God and Savior, even in the eternal reign and even into the eternal kingdom. That yes, he is the Savior of the world, but he's also my Savior. Isn't that thing that I'll only see and understand Yeah. Maybe. I just think the implication is there. He's impressing upon us the fact that there's intimacy and that there, there is a oneness between you and the one that you've made covenant with. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's go on to Thyatira. Uh, this one is Jesus portrayed for us as eyes like a flame of fire. And feet like burnished bronze.
okay? And so what do we see? Their eyes like a flame of fire. What is that telling us about Jesus? Yeah, all seeing, all knowing. And the idea of the fire and the flames, it does, it's, it's a judgment, it's a judgment that also purifies, right? A judging and a purifying. Okay, so we're judging, purifying, all seeing, all knowing. And in this case, what does he say to this particular church? Do not do what? Yeah, so you're not to follow false teachers, right? And you're not to um, you're not to fall into what? Same thing up here, immorality. And did you notice how these two have very similar things? And this one it had to do with fidelity. This one is talking about um, what? Don't follow after them, don't follow them, and don't follow their teacher teachings. And what is that the implication there? What, what had Jezebel done? Yeah, she was teaching those, those deep things of Satan, correct? And as a believer, if you've got a false teacher standing before you and they're teaching you wrong things, what, should, what is your job to do? Yes. To test it and see if it's true. Yes, just like the Bereans, right? Test to see if what they're being taught is correct. So Jesus previously taught it in a parable about also about these good slaves. We looked at Luke 19, 11 to 19, right? That was on page 94 in your homework. Mm -hmm. And what was the outcome about these good slaves, the ones that were faithful? Yeah, and how were they rewarded by being what? Given authority. So apparently then if, the, if this is what we're looking at is the idea of authority, being given authority as a reward, what was the problem with Pergamum then? Or Thyatira rather, Thyatira, what were they not doing? Authority. They were not exercising. So they, they were not exercising ruling or making judgment, right? Right. It's really interesting because this particular book, this particular letter is actually the opposite of what most people do when they take that one verse out of context and say, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Therefore, blanket statement, don't ever judge, which is not what scripture teaches us at all. In this particular one, there's a whole letter written to Thyatira and saying, look, you need to be judging. You need to examine your teachers and you need to examine what they're leading you into and you need to not just follow blindly. And, and if you will do that, he says, I will give you what? I will give you authority where? Over the nations. So in other words, if you will judge correctly in your church, then I will give you judgment in the eternal time to come. 
if you do if you do a good job presently so that's where the the luke um chapter 19 passage about the good slaves and the faithful slaves really relating here because he's saying uh, those who did well those who were faithful in this life with the little bit that I gave them, I will give them even more greater things to do in the kingdom to come. But if you're not faithful here with a little, what? Then I'm not going to give you anything for the future. Take it away from that wicked slave, right? And give it to someone else. That's right. Yes, millennial. And uh, um, yeah, the millennial kingdom. Yes. First uh, Corinthians talks about uh, cleansing ourselves, cleanse yourself from the leaven of all sin, cast out wickedness from your midst. We talked about the man who in the, the Corinthian church was having his mother, right? His father's wife, I guess it was. So it was his stepmother. Um, and also how they were tolerating all kinds of different uh, acts of immorality and sin in the church. And he's saying, stop that. Why? Because a little leaven does what? leavens the whole loaf and you need to purge sin from your midst and also purge what evil people from your midst if you have people in your midst calling themselves christian living within your church in this case a jezebel in your church teaching and leading and they're living a life of immorality or they're teaching the people to go in a way of immorality or even idolatry you are to do what with them cast them out right is there nothing saying let's let's see if we can change them well you do yes you definitely there is all that but yeah that's that's in matthew for sure uh -huh. okay um i loved one i looked up one in ezekiel 9 i'm just going to give you the reference and you can look it up later ezekiel 9 verses 1 to 6 there's a man a certain man clothed in linen for those who did daniel who do you know the certain man in linen is jesus and he's marked the foreheads of those who have groaned over the abominations and the uh, the the uh, immoralities that were committed but god then turned around and said but for the rest he sent a, an angel i think it was out and he says slay them without partiality man woman child uh young person, even babies. It says the sinner, he began, and then he said also, he followed up, he says, and begin at my household. Begin at the household of faith. So for you and I as Christians, what we need to know is we're not just judging the world. We're not just standing up here being holier than thou, which is something that I grew up hearing a lot. You know, you're holier than thou. No, we're saying judgment begins at the household of faith. We certainly want to judge ourselves first. We will never do it all perfectly, but we certainly should be taking care of the overt sin that we see in our midst. You don't tolerate it. You judge it. You do try to correct it first. And if the correcting does not uh, help, and as a matter of fact, Jezebel, what does it say? I tried to, I gave her time to repent and she refused. So that's when you expel them, right? All right. Very good. Yes. Yes. And they didn't do it. And what happened to Israel because they didn't do what God said about purging. They had they became stumbling blocks to them all throughout the time. Yes. Isn't it amazing how if you just listen to God? Yeah. I am I've been wondering all this time 
does it mean when you say overcome? Does that mean everything you've been talking about? Yes. And now let's let's just hone it in a little bit more decisively. How do we overcome? How do we do that? By the blood of Christ, by the blood of the Lamb. What is the overcome? How do we overcome? Wasn't there one in First uh, John that says, and you overcome? Can you find it for me, somebody? Yes. By the word of his testimony, by the blood. How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, meaning the word of God. It's the word of God and it's Jesus who is the one that overcomes. So we must have faith. There you go. So if we have faith in him, if we believe he is who he said he is, that he is God, that he came in flesh, that he came to die for our sins, and he did, that he's the resurrected Lord, that he is now resurrected. If we believe those things, we believe in him and we believe in the, the word of God, basically, by obedience, right, as a result of our faith. But we start with faith, yes. right? Did you find it? Okay. Yes. Oh, that's first John five. Okay. First John is really, really an excellent book. Cause in that, what it says in there is these things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. So the whole book is written so that you can understand whether or not you're actually saved or not. Right. So there's like five chapters to go through and all the different things that you can look at. All right, so we have covered this. I will give you authority over the nations. If you, will, if you will exercise ruling in the church today and ruling also in your own, the disciplines of your own life, if you will do that ruling, then in the eternal, I will give you authority over the nations. And I will also give you what? What does that mean? <laughs> the morning. Now, why is he called the morning star? Meaning that is Jesus. You're right. Revelation 22, 16 says Jesus is the bright morning star. Why? It's a, listen, the morning star is a symbolic picture. Does anybody know what the morning star is? I'm going to show you a picture. This is a picture of the morning star. It's actually the planet Venus, right? Venus, the planet Venus. So it's the little tiny light that you see. And my husband was telling me um, that when he was a navigator on a B-52, that he often did a lot of his charting by the morning star. That's how he would plot out their missions when they would go on military missions. And so the morning star is the one star in the sky that's got, it, it has a fixed place because it's not a moving star. It's a planet, right? And it's fixed. And so by it, they can literally navigate a place to go. Now, what is, how does that convey back to us then that Jesus is the morning star and about the subject of ruling over the nations or ruling in general, having authority to rule? Yeah. Constancy, never changing, uh, steady, reliable, trustworthy. 
yesterday today forever it's always the same now does it make better sense to you now when he talks about the morning because again we're in a book of what kind of literature symbolism so again this is symbolism so he's the bright morning star that symbolism is there for early uh the early writers of these of these documents of this bible the morning star was something they they literally that was how they guided themselves in many ways through i remember there's also a movie uh, i'll i won't go there okay <laughs> yes same thing but well no it's not completely different it's basically the same thing it's just they chose the morning star as their example they could have said the north star he is the North Star. It would have still worked. Yes, they are two different stars, but symbolically, they would both work. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So the Morning Star, it's Venus. It's a symbolic picture of hope, by the way. This is really cool. The long, dark night of unjust rule on the earth ends and God's new era of righteous ruling begins. Do you remember that, ver that verse in Luke 21? It says, and the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Does everybody understand what I'm saying on that? Okay, the times of the Gentiles means Gentile rule over who? Who's, who's the, the central focus of all the book of Revelation about? What nation? Israel. Israel. So we're talking about Israel, God's holy nation, whom he's going to redeem. He's going to fulfill all his promises to them, which he hasn't fully done yet. He's done most of it, but we're looking for the, the kingdom rule, right, yet to come. So he says about them in Luke 21, 24, that in that particular passage where Jesus is talking about the coming of the end of the age, right, he says that the times of the end of the Gentiles will be fulfilled meaning their rule over Israel as a nation, Gentile rule over them. Right now, there's still rule over Israel in many uh, ways. We, we do have Israel on back on their land now. This is the first time in many, many years. And they have some independence, but is there still Gentile um, oppression coming against Israel? Yeah. So one day God's going to end that. Yes. No, that's another verse. That's a Romans one. And the fullness of the Gentiles comes into faith. This one is the times of the Gentile end. They're two different verses. Yep. Yep. One of them, because one of them relates to Daniel about the, the different kingdoms that God lays out in the book of Daniel, Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, Greece and Rome, right? And then Jesus comes. When the times of the Gentile, those kingdoms that Daniel talks about, when they come to an end then Jesus comes and he sets up his kingdom rule and there's no longer rule by the Gentiles over Israel yeah so that's just really cool Since we're out of time, are we yes we want to just pull the class and see if we just finish and then maybe not do the video today okay okay we're going to finish if you're if you're interested, you may hang in with me. Otherwise, go get the sandwich and come back. <laughs>
Yeah, because we're we're halfway through. We got three more to go, but we're getting close. To, but these are so good. They, uh, these extra little insights about the promises to the overcomers. They're also much of them are symbolic. And so you do have to do some research to try to figure out exactly what they're speaking of here. Um, this morning star, so in it, it's a symbolic, it's a picture of hope because what happens is the morning star rises, it's brighter than the darkness, even of the early dawn morning and you can still see it. And therefore that's a hope, a, it's a symbolic picture also of hope, right? And so in that Jesus is the hope of a bright morning day that's coming, of a brighter day in history for mankind to come. Um, the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father, Matthew 13, 43 says. And we have a prophetic word as a lamp until the morning star arises in our hearts. I thought that was really good. Second uh, Peter 1, 19. Okay, so that takes care of that one. Let's move on to Sardis. Um, yeah, we probably could do that, although I kind of sometimes use this. Okay, she's going to move you over so you can see the other board. Yeah, you don't need to move that. She's going to move it down. That pretty much does it. That'll do her. Yeah, that's great. That's good. And I'll move on to this point. So they, now, can you see me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. She can. Okay. Sardis. All right. Let's start with how Jesus is portrayed to this particular church. Has the seven spirits of God. And he has the seven stars. So in a way, it's a little bit of a repeat of what we had back here at the first one, who holds the seven stars and who walks among the seven lampstands. Here we have, he has the seven spirits of God and he also has the seven stars. So the seven stars we determined are the leaders of the churches, the, the pastors of the churches. And when he speaks of the seven spirits, now that one was really fun. Everybody was was concerned about that particular one when we started, right? How does everybody feel about it now? Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that. What are the seven spirits of God? It means the Holy Spirit. That's technically what that means. Let's write that down. The seven spirits of God simply means the Holy Spirit. And we saw in Isaiah uh, a verse, let's see, which one was that? Um, 11, right? One through five. And it lists the seven uh, characteristics of God that are found within the Holy Spirit. It lists just seven of them. And it speaks in that particular passage that those seven spirits rest upon Jesus, right? Okay. So we're going to, we see then that the one who has those is the seven spirits of God rests on Jesus and he holds and protects those who are his, right? So the Holy Spirit, That's Isaiah 11, 1 to 5. And then he has the seven stars, just as we've already determined over here. It just simply means he has sovereignty. Uh, he has relationship. 
holding them. He has, he has uh, omnipotence. Right, he's omnipotent. Okay, and he says to this church, what? <laughs> you are dead. He first tells him, wake up, right? Why wake up? They're lukewarm, right? We learned a lot about that lukewarm water and what that causes. And then he gives them two instructions in verse two and three. What does he tell them? Strengthen the things which remain and remember what you received and heard. And what had they received and heard? The gospel. Okay, so there's two verses there, two and three. Okay, the gospel. So what we know is that what they had heard and what they had received were, were the gospel message. Now, in Ephesians 1, um, 13, somebody look that one up and read that particular verse for us. And also I want somebody to look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because one of the things that... Um, this particular passage emphasized was on the idea of deeds. He says in verse two, I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God, right? So what part do deeds have in our coming into salvation? And we had to research that when we did our homework those weeks, right? How, so what do deeds have to do with your salvation? Nothing. So... <laughs> Yeah, they, they become evidence, right? But, the, but as far as attaining to your salvation, what part do your deeds have to do with your salvation? Nothing. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says what? Okay, so you are saved by grace, not deeds, right? And that's in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And now go on to uh, verse, was it 2? It's chapter 1, verse 13. And what do we learn there? So how do you get saved according to that particular passage? You believed what you heard, right? And then what happened? You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the message to this church is that he presents himself as the Holy Spirit, right? And he, and he says to them, you need to strengthen what you have received and heard. You need to remember what you've received and heard. What had they received and heard was the gospel. So they heard the gospel, and then they believed it. And that's in Ephesians 1, 13. 
So that's what he wants them to do. He wants them to remember the gospel that they've heard, and he wants them to receive that message by faith. And if they do that, then they will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. Yeah. And then you begin to walk in it. It's, it's really neat because your deeds are definitely a part of the evidence as Carol brought up. The evidence of faith is your walking. It's how, how people, ex it's exactly what he's already said to these others. Look, I'm seeing you do things that are not lining up with one who actually loves me, one who's actually saved. But so there are evidences that need to be there, but they are the after effect. If uh, the letter to Ephesus says, I am to be your first love, that has to be there first. That, that is what is essential to have your salvation. But then after that, all those great things that, that the Ephesians did, those were great signs that they were actually in faith. But the problem is, is they had waned on their, their first love. And God is saying, no, you have to have me first. And you know what? What does that mean then about deeds? If you have all those good deeds, but you don't have Jesus as your first love, what? Then you're not saved. And you will, you will not enter into the gates of heaven. And in that case, you won't eat from, the, from the, the, the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so here, the seven spirits, he represents to them. He says, you must remember what you, what you have received and heard, the gospel. You need to believe it, and then I will give you my Holy Spirit. If you do that, what will he do? Okay. And confess. I like that one too. Uh, confess your name before my father and his angels. I'm not going to write that on here, but that we know that's on there. That's all in three five. Okay, three five. Now let's go back and talk about the things that we learned. What does it mean about the white clothing? You will be clothed in, in, a, in white garments. So who gets clothed in white garments? Okay, it's the, it's, I'm sorry, say that again. There you go. Very good. Those of, so basically what you're saying is we get clothed in righteousness, but it's not our righteousness. The righteousness that we get clothed in, the white garments that we are clothed in, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is righteous. We are clothed in white garments that he gives to us. It's his righteousness that he gives to us. So let's read that together. Uh, Revelation 7, 14. Someone want to read that? Because that one, I think, said it uh, actually exactly what she just said. Revelation 7, 14. Okay, they've been made white by the blood of the lamb. Okay. 
I thought that I thought I had the right one, but maybe not. That one still is good. So the blood are 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 made. The clothing, the garments are made white by the blood of Jesus. Okay. Revelation 19 is really good. If you look at verses, both 14 and 8, there are two different verses. Start at 14 and jump back to 8 because it's really good there too because this is Jesus returning to earth at his second coming. He's coming on his white horse, which we are so excited to hear about, right? And what does it say in verse 14? Okay, and then go back up to eight to see who that is. Wow. Okay, so the the righteous is the righteous works of the saints. I like it put that way better because the righteous works of the, what is the only righteous work that you and I really can do? Loving God, putting faith in him, believing him, right? That's what, what equates to righteousness for us. All of our other deeds can be given rewards, but they don't impute righteousness. The only righteous deed that there is, is the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have, so when it talks about the righteous deeds of the saints, it's speaking of our faith in Jesus. Those of us who had faith in Jesus, we are going to return with him dressed in white, why, why? Because we have his righteousness upon us. It's the righteous deeds of the saints, which are faith. Okay. All right. So wake up. Why? Because you're lukewarm. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And he says, strengthen the things that which remain. Remember what you have heard and uh, what you received. And that was the gospel. And it's only by the gospel. By grace are you saved through faith. Wake up. I come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I come. I loved this one. Somebody had asked about this earlier about what does it mean that we don't know about what hour? Is that speaking of the second coming? Is that like the time of the rapture? What time? What is that second coming? You don't know at what hour. Well, in the context of this, what is he speaking about? I have not found your deeds complete. What does he want them to do to complete their deeds? What deed must they do? Believe in Jesus, right? And so I've not found that complete. And he says, I want you to do that because in light of that, you don't know at what hour I will come. What is he saying? You could be in trouble because what does it mean by you don't know what hour I will come? Okay, so is it speaking of the trumpet day when Jesus returns on his white horse, or is it speaking of a different hour? There you go. It's talking about our own personal life. This is saying, there's a, there's a passage in Psalm 39, verse 5 to 7, that says, before God, our life is at best a mere breath, and our lifetime as nothing, but my hope is in you. So because we don't know what day or hour our day is, we don't know when we will die. 
I don't know when my last breath will be taken. And he's saying to this, to these believers, you need to wake up. You need the Holy Spirit because you don't know at what hour I will come. In other words, don't delay today or don't put off until tomorrow what you need to do today. Right. Uh huh. Go ahead. You have a name that you're alive. That you're That's right. That's what you're alluding back to is uh, you need to understand you haven't really been born again. That's exactly right. You're actually dead. And if you don't watch out, I'm going to come to you before you. Before you physically die, and then you'll be, you'll be too late, right? Oh, I was in the. Uh, Luke four. Oh, you're right. It's wake up. You're right. No, you're right. I. Yep. Okay. But is that really saying that they are not believers at all? Yeah. Um, well, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, what? Right. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And uh, what is our subject matter? spiritual spiritual deadness or spiritual life right so you have a name that you're alive but god says no you're not you're spiritually dead so what does that mean right so you're called christian by name only right and he literally says i have found your deeds not complete in the sight of my god Right. That's right. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. Isn't that cool? How these always these these qualifiers, how Jesus is presented to them as the one who is the Holy Spirit. That's what they need. And he says, you're dead. You have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. You need to strengthen the things that do remain. In other words, the seeds that have been planted. And I think it was Diane had brought up the different kinds of seeds that get planted in the soil. and What happens to this? To this? Well, these were a people who had had the word of God preached to them, but they had not allowed it to actually have its fullness in them. Um, it goes back to, I think, Hebrews again. You've not united what you've heard with faith. And therefore, in the case of the Hebrews passage, he, he, his demonstration was, I left them to die in the wilderness. They weren't even allowed to enter into the promised land. And what is the promised land a picture of? What is it symbolically a picture of? Heaven. Entering into the rest of God and into heaven. Exactly. So in this case, he's saying you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting that lukewarm thing because I had that wrong on there. I don't know why. Um, on here, I have it correct. <laughs> I just switched on myself, I guess. And if you're looking at it, contrast, like these, these rocks and Yes, right. So there's in this particular church, there are a few who are, but who is he addressing? The ones that aren't. <laughs> he's addressing the ones who think they're alive, but they're actually dead, and he's calling them on it, right? So they're going to be dressed in garments. So what are we talking about? The white garments, we understand what that is, right? I'm going to confess your name. Well, that's an easy one, right? In Matthew 10, there's a passage. Does anybody know that one kind of offhand? If you confess me, 
before men, I will confess you, right, before my Father who is in heaven. So it's a, basically, it's a direct quote from what we looked at here. It, he says in, in the promise to them, I will confess you before my Father. It's really interesting that some of these, a lot of these statements in here are statements that Jesus said during his earthly ministry. You can go back to the Gospels and find a lot of these promises as to the overcomers. Jesus has said them in his in his sermons to different in different times. Yes, yeah, that's cool. I like that. I didn't. I hadn't looked that one up. Good job. Okay, now the la the next one is Philadelphia. And how is he described there? Who is holy, true, has the key of David. And he opens and shuts. And that's a descriptive of the key of David, right? Opens uh, and no one will shut. And he shuts and no one will open. Um, and so what are we saying about him? How do you, what are the qualities that he is portraying for us? Well, truth for one thing, that one was easy, right? He's truth. And it's in contrast, he's not a liar. Why was that important in this particular letter? They were... Yeah, there were people there and they were literally, they were of the synagogue of Satan and they were lying. And what do you suppose they were lying about? What do you think they were saying to these brand new baby Christians in this church? You don't belong to Abraham's blessings. You aren't going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? God is not your God. God does not love you, <laughs> right? Okay, so uh, he is the truth, not a liar. What else do we learn about him? Concerning the, the key of David, what is that quality? Authority. Okay. Yes, ownership, sovereignty. Um, sovereignty, this absolute omnipotence maybe. You know, that, that it's that surety, that, that authority, that, that absolute um, king of kings and lord of lords. I love that. That's exactly right. Okay. And then he tells him, I have put before you an open door um, because of three things. What, what do you have? A little power. You have a little power you kept my word and you have not denied denied my name okay and um What is the little power they have? What is that talking about? You have a little power. Humility. Humility. I love that. Super easy. Humility before who? Yeah. Before God. Because otherwise, in that list of three things, it doesn't become a positive, does it? Being little, in any other interpretation, 
actually makes it a weakness, not something that Jesus would commend them for. And he's commending them here. He's, he's telling them, these are the things I am, am uh, commending about you that are positives. You have a little power. You have humility before me. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And therefore, what is he saying about these? What is he going to give them? I will do what then? Make you a pillar. Uh, and then what else? Okay, three things. One, the name of my God. Number two, the name of the city of my God. I always wondered about that one. The name of the city of my God. And then the last one, my new name. This is why we get a new name when we're in heaven. We get, we get a new name because Jesus gets a new name. Right. Now that isn't in the list to the overcomer though. No. Right. But it's, it is a, it is a word of promise. So to the church, and I think it's rather significant in my opinion. Uh, yeah. And the hour of testing, what is the out? What did we determine was the hour of testing? The tribulation, it's the hour of the testing. It's a definitive time and place. Uh, and it's over how much of the world? The whole world, the whole earth, right? Okay, so in this case, though, concerning the promises to overcomers, we see, he says, I'm going to make you a pillar uh, in the temple of my God. Meaning in heaven. And I'm going to write on you the name of my God, the name of the, of the new city, and also the name of my new name. So concerning writing on us a new name, what do you see there? What did you learn? What does it mean to, be, again, we just really already talked about it because it's almost an overlap on the previous one. Who gets a new name and why would we be given a new name? What happens when you get married? You get, you get a new name, right? You take on the name of who? Your covenant partner. So what is the implication here about getting new names? You're in covenant with that one. So writing on him a new name, this is talking about covenant again right? New names. What about making you a pillar in the temple of my God? What is that talking about? You know, what's really interesting. This is what I did for this because I fit, I felt like this one was still a little bit vague when, when we got, I know everybody's shaking their head. Yes. They, they thought it was vague too. Two, Two verses, one, Ephesians 4.22. Let's start there. 
because what all I want you to do is, is see the parallel in it, okay? In Ephesians 4.22, what does it say? Oh, am I in the wrong one? Okay, I've got the wrong verse then, don't I? Where does it say that we are we are made a dwelling of God in the flesh, that we are a dwelling of God in the spirit? You guys looked that one up. I know you did. Um, let's see. Okay, good. look at that one. All right, thank you. Okay, so we are being built as a holy temple unto the Lord. And in other words, once you and I receive the Holy Spirit, what does that make you and I right now here on planet Earth today? What are you? If you have God's Spirit dwelling in you, what are you? You are the temple of God. Each one of us individually are the temple of God. So if that happens because you receive the Holy Spirit, right? The one who is holy, the one who is true, you receive that. Therefore, you get to stand up as one who is holy and one who stands for what is true, right? Or is, is uh, identified with the one who is true. So if you are that right now in this physical life right here and now, then it says in Revelation 3.12, what is he going to make us? I'm going to make you also a pillar. So all it's real, what I saw in it when I looked at it made an evaluation because it really wasn't um, quite as definitive as some of the research that we did. But to me, what it was saying is, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are, you are a temple of God. And guess what that means in heaven? You will remain being a temple of God. But you have to become a temple of God here to become, be a pillar in the temple of God in heaven as well. And it, it's almost like saying, um, you will be what you are. Only better. <laughs> yeah. But you remain in that temple. Also, what did we learn about pillars? What was the symbolic picture in the pillars that we saw there? That was Philadelphia where they had all those earthquakes. And what, what remained in the city? Only the pillars, right? And everything else had crumbled to the ground. And so they lived on the, in tents and so forth around the outskirts of the city. They would come in to do commerce and business, but then at night they would go home. Why? Because of all the aftershocks that were still going on. And they didn't want to get crushed by buildings, right? But so the, the symbolic imagery in that was that pillars are the one thing that stood. It's the one thing that stood remaining. It stood strong. It, it was immovable, so to speak. And that's what we are as God's people with the Holy Spirit within us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It doesn't matter what earthquake comes against you, you will stand if you have the power of God within you, right? And what I think he's really saying to us then is that which was true on earth will remain to be true even better in the eternal kingdom. I think that's the only thing I could really draw out of it. Did anybody try to get anything else or find anything else? 
That one was a little harder for me to pull exactly what was saying, but I'm going to make you a pillar. And I thought, well, wait a minute, we're already a pillar. We're already the temple of God. So we will just remain the temple of God, but new and improved. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But, but again, in, in relationship to the topic that we're talking about, who is the overcomer? The one who has the Holy Spirit. When do you get the Holy Spirit? Now or in heaven? Now. In every one of these instances, you must receive the Holy Spirit in this present life if you expect to have the, the rewards that he's promising to the overcomer in the eternal. So the Holy Spirit comes here. And so in a way, maybe that's the major picture that we're supposed to draw from that is, look, you, the decision is too late after death. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this to face judgment. You're, you make your decisions in this life and you will you carry those rewards or the consequences with you after death. So, right. Well, it is. Yeah. And yes. And it's also, I don't know who brought it up earlier, but the idea, I think it was Carol all the way to the end. You have to be faithful to the end. You don't get to start the good work of walking in faith, but then wane along the way. That would be those seeds in soil that they didn't really take their roots. They started out and they grew up a little bit, but then the, the, the sun came and withered and they died, right? So in, those, in that particular picture of the, the seeds in the soil, those were seeds that never actually had faith and they never actually received the Holy Spirit. If you receive the Holy Spirit, what will you be? A pillar. You'll be one that stands and holds fast. And you will do it because why? Because you're so strong and you're so great. And you're such an awesome person. No, because God does it in us. That's the grace of the work of, of salvation is God is the one who accomplishes, first of all, the salvation itself. He's the one who instigated the whole thing from before the foundation of the world. The plan was set in motion. God is the one who once he gives you says, and he will keep you, right? So all we have to do is believe what we hear and accept it, period. That's by faith are you saved through grace. Grace, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, not really. I think I've seen it in Matthew quite a bit. I think I would Google that one. It's actually in there more than you think. Yeah, I think he, he took, for instance, the gospel of John, the gospel of John, he does it a lot. He says, I and the father are one. And he calls him my God, I think in that particular, I, I think. Yeah, my God, my God, why hast thou forget, forsaken me? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Good question, though. All right. Last one is Laodicea. We're at the end. It only took an extra half an hour. <laughs> Jesus, he's called what? The Amen, uh, the faithful and true witness, 
uh, the beginning of creation of God. I, I know. And how, why do you think he gave such powerful names to this last church? What do we know about this last church? These are the ones that are lukewarm. Now I can put lukewarm up here. Lukewarm. <laughs> I don't know why I did that earlier. I just did. Okay, these are lukewarm. Uh, he's about to what? To spit. Oops. Pit. Spit them out of his mouth. Okay. And he says from them, what did they need to do? Buy from me. And what must they buy? And I Now, this one, I think we did such a great job already of really going through it. And it's so fresh in our minds. What did we determine were these different things? The gold refined by fire. We're speaking of faith, right? We're also speaking of Jesus himself. Who was the one that was refined by fire on the cross? right? Christ himself. This is faith, which is more precious than gold. And what is the faith in? It's faith in Jesus himself. This is the gold, the gold that we seek after. I think about all those parables where there's hidden treasure and what will a man do that he can get that his hidden treasure? What if he knows this treasure in a field? What will he do concerning that field? He goes out and sells everything he has just to buy that field. That's that gold refined by fire that we're to seek after. Uh, that was in First Peter seven, or First Peter one rather, seven to nine. White garments. We know what that one is. Spiritual clothing, right? Uh, righteousness, and it's only from Christ. It's his His righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. The white garments. And the ISAF, the knowledge of Christ. And it's the knowledge of Christ that then gives us light and that light comes by the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit who opens our eyes, gives us eyes to see. We looked at those all last week. We looked in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Uh, somebody read that one. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6, uh, just for the benefit of everybody to have a fresh reminder on the ISAB being the Holy Spirit and also the knowledge of Christ. Eyes unveiled by the light of the knowledge of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Who has that one? Somebody? Ready? 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6 also. But people who are spiritual can't receive the truth of God's spirit and also include the things that they cannot understand. That's right. And, 
And what does it mean, only people who are spiritual? What does that mean? Who can be spiritual? Only those who have the spirit of God. So without the spirit of God, you don't have spiritual insight. You can't have spiritual understanding and you have no knowledge. You have no light. You don't have eyes to see. You don't have the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6. Isn't that amazing? So un eyes are going to be unveiled by the light of the knowledge of God in Christ. That's how we receive that spiritual sight. So, and that is only through the Holy Spirit that's given to you, who gives you that illumination. Okay, so we are to buy from God then in this context, faith in Jesus, spiritual righteousness that comes only from Christ, and the Holy Spirit, which comes by the knowledge of Christ. Okay, so what are the promises then? Okay, grant you to sit with me on my throne. Okay, and also, I guess that was the only promise. That was that, that, was that one promise. That's in uh, Revelation 3.21. Okay, so that's the primary promise. Now, we looked, again, we did look in uh, Luke 19, we looked at those different cities that were given to people because they were faithful. So we've already talked about that one. Um, Revelation 5.10 is one of the verses that you looked up. What did you see there? Uh-huh. Will reign where? Upon the earth. Okay, and that's in Revelation 5, verse 10. And then there's another one that's really good, I think, and that's in Revelation 20. I think it's verse 6. Take, take a look and see if I'm right. And we are just barely touching on the verses. We did so many scriptures on these things, but there's only so much you can cover, and we're already way over, so it's a good thing. Kristen gave us an extra hour. <laughs> okay, Revelation 20, verse 6. Who has that one? Blessed and holy is the one who has been part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and we will reign with him for a thousand years. Wow. So if, again, back here, it says you will not be hurt by the second death. Correct. So we saw that one in this church to uh, Smyrna and those same ones who are not going to be hurt by the second death are also those who will be given. Um, they will be made pray, uh, priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Christ for how long? Yeah. A thousand years. How long is Christ's uh, kingdom on this earth? One thousand years. Yeah. OK, so you will will reign with Christ 1,000 
years. That's a long time, guys. <laughs> Revelation 12. Of course, in perspective to eternity, maybe not so much, but still. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I feel like we barely really covered a lot. Were there any other insights on the imagery that you looked at? We looked at the breads. We looked at the authorities. We looked at the... the um, the morning star. Um, I think we covered those though pretty well. Um, being made temples, we already, we actually, a lot of these we'd already covered. The book of life, which was the questions that you kind of had some about the books of life and the various books. Those are ones that we, we did a ton of scriptures on. Um, but did anybody have any additional things that they looked at that they want to share right now before we wrap this up? What would you say is the implication of what we've looked at then all these last 10 weeks? How is this applicable to what we are about to enter into? How does this apply? Why would Jesus write letters to the churches? And, in, and incorporate that message along with the message that follows, which we know is pertaining to what? The days of what? Tribulation, right? Why would he give us letters to churches in the same confines of that letter to the... Okay, so you're saying it's about... Uh, uh, kind of a timeline, the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be. So we do know there's a book division laid out for us in chapter one, okay? And that is true. Isn't this interesting? What is the things yet to come concerning? What, what do we know? Just, I mean, we haven't even started it. What is it about? Judgment. Judgment. Who gets judged? the unbelievers. So anyone who's not an overcomer is going to go through the days of judgment during the tribulation. That's what is coming next in this sequence, the things which are yet to be, right? So, okay. So he wants people to get saved so that what? So that I liked what you brought up earlier. What was one of the promises that's going to happen? What does he promise to those concerning they will not face? The hour of testing, right? And we determined the hour of testing is speaking of the tribulation. Go back and find that verse for me. Do you have that handy? Uh, open up your observation worksheet and look in. Um, Yes, there it is. Very good. Good job. Okay. He says in chat, God says to, and this one's to the letter of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was the one where he's speaking to them in a positive. Remember, this is the church where there is no condemnation. There's only two churches. There was no condemnation. Philadelphia was one of them. 
and to Philadelphia who was doing it well because they were humbled before God. They had kept God's word and they would not deny his name. He spoke of them about the fact that he has the key of David, meaning he was the sovereign one who got to say who would and who would not enter into heaven, right? He's the one who opens doors and shuts doors. This did not have anything to do with evangelism. It had to do with God's power over who was saved and who was not. And the, the temp, uh, or the synagogue of Satan were people who were saying to them, you're not saved. You're not God's people. That was the opposition, right? That they were going against. And he literally says to them, because you have done these things, you have been faithful to me. I am the holy, holy and true God. I hold that power. And I'm telling you this, besides the promises to the overcomers, he says to the churches, by the way, how many churches does, do these statements apply to? Do these, only, do these messages only apply to these seven specific churches in that specific time in history? No. So who do they apply to? All Christians, all churches throughout all ages. So when he says to this church here, Philadelphia, because you have kept my word, the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of that testing. What is he promising you and I? That if we are in faith, we will not have to go through the hour of testing, which is the next part of this book. I believe that is what he is saying. Now, I know there are many who would disagree with me. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Let them. <laughs> I'm, and I'm not belittling people that have different views. I'm just saying that statement is in here for a reason. My question um, as an inductive student is, I need to analyze what would be the point. Do you think that this statement in verse 10 was given to be an encouragement? Yeah. Those who dwell on the earth. That is pretty emphatic. Now, who are the ones that dwell upon the, on the earth? Who did we determine those people were? non-believers because it goes on in the book the rest of the book it talks about those who dwell on the earth are the ones that will take the mark of the beast they were they're the they're the ones that will worship the antichrist they're the ones that um fight against or come out against the believers in that time those that will come into faith so we know that these are the unbelievers who are living in those those end times in the tribulation days and it says it's for those who dwell upon the earth, and it's it's a time of testing. It's the, the hour of the testing. It's a specific time. So in conclusion, what I'm saying is, or what I'm asking is, when we look at the book on the whole, and we see these messages, which are promises to you and me as believers and, and to this church age present, how would this be of any comfort if this is not saying that we would be kept from that tribulation, it would be saying, then it would have to be saying the hour of testing is speaking about an hour of testing that they, Philadelphia, were, were going through. Are you seeing what I'm saying? You'd have to isolate it to that specific church in that time in history. Of, no, to all the churches. Yeah. 
Excellent. That was going to be my next thing to bring up. How much of these things in here apply to our churches today? Do they all do little, do you see bits and pieces of all of these messages that would be relevant and pertinent to us even today? Yes. Yeah. And the fact that he makes a promise that will be kept from that hour of testing that speaking of, as Carol pointed out, that next segment division of the book, it's speaking of that next segment division specifically, and I'm going to be keeping you from that hour of testing. And so to me, that's saying this is the promise that you and I won't have to go through that time. So why the relevance of what we've just gone through? Number one, it's an urgency to be, be sure, examine yourself to be sure that you are in the faith. So these are not because of so much of that Nope. No, I yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Right. That's right. And the subject matter, by definition, of overcoming is what? If coming into faith, it's about salvation. It's are you a believer or are you not? If you're a believer, you are an overcomer. How do you believe? What is? What is? Who is it that, by the way, overcomes? It's all Jesus. We could write across this board on every single one of these, Jesus, on every single one of these columns, who is the overcomer? What is it that overcomes? It's Jesus. That's the only answer you need. You don't even need all those details. We could have started today's discussion and just wrote Jesus, who overcomes Jesus, and skipped all the details. Right. And if you believe in him, you're an overcomer. The end. We could have done this literally in one in one sentence. And here I am. I blew an hour and a half of your time. Yes. I read at some point way back when that there is a testing when we get to heaven as well. Oh, yes. And that's a different time. That's a different testing. It's the testing of our works as believers. And we get rewards for them. Yes, that's in First Corinthians, by the way, three. Say it again. Right, crowns. Right, I believe those crowns probably come out of that time of testing, which is in First Corinthians chapter three, and it talks about our works of faith. Once you're a believer your works will be tested by fire. And it talks about hay, wood, and, and stubble, I think. And they go through, and if the fire burns them up, they're gone. And then the others is gold, silver, and precious stones or something like that, right? And so, yeah, it's vague in my head, but I remember, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it talks about, but that's a believer's works are tested to see whether or not we did them with purity of heart and for the right reasons. And the things that remain are what we get a reward for. And I think those, that's where those crowns probably come from. And then we throw them back at the feet of Christ because we did them for, the, for him anyway. Yeah, to honor him, right? Bring his name, honor, and glory. <laughs> yeah. All right. So... The answer was Jesus and believe, and that's it. We're done. <laughs> Again. <Yay. laughs>
<laughs> Yay. Thank you guys. Bye. See y'all for part two of Revelation. <laughs>